0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Funding flip-flop, U.S. stimulus talks continue with mixed signals on all sides. Going for golden? China says a surge in domestic tourism is a sign that COVID's contained. And deltas force the U.S. Gulf Coast bracing for yet another hurricane. Thank goodness it's Friday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, and it's an on-off, off-on, I think, kind of world, whether we're talking about U.S. stimulus talks, presidential debates, even this show on occasion. But the good news is we are here for you today, and we have plenty coming up. As always, let's take a look at what's going on for the futures. We're looking to add to yesterday's gains. We actually closed at one-month highs here for the majors, but the stimulus deal drama remains a key short-term driver, either in the form of a pre-election agreement, as the president indicated yesterday on Fox News, or perhaps if Joe Biden should win the election. Why? Well, actually, it's pretty simple. The expectation that the Democrats will spend more if they win and sharpish. Now, speaking of sharp, we saw a sharp rise in Chinese stocks. In the session overnight, too, following the Golden Week holiday, Shanghai, composite rising some 1.9%, taking that market to a two-week high, too. We've got all the latest on the Golden Week holidays, as I mentioned, as well. What about across the Atlantic, though? I can tell you worrying signs in terms of the rising COVID cases and what that could do to the economic growth prospects. The World Health Organization reporting a record daily one-day rise in the past 24 hours, driven By a surge in Europe, the continent now reporting more cases than India, Brazil or the United States. And that's clearly having an economic impact too. UK GDP growth rising at just over 2% in August. That was a marked slowdown versus the numbers that we saw in July and dashes hopes of a V-shaped recovery. That despite government stimulus efforts, a push to reopen and the Chancellor's eat out scheme. The message here perhaps, is that without more support, it actually could have been worse, something that lawmakers in the United States, I think, need to remember, too. Let's bring in uh, Christine Romans to join us now. Christine, I called it on-off, off-we-think, on-we-think. <laughs> I mean, we're laughing, but it's it's devastating, not isn't funny. it, for the, the people involved. What are we looking at here, if anything?
1: And, you know, and I've been using whiplash or flip-flop. I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite sure what this is, or even... How serious the presidential leadership is in this issue of stimulus. Is it back on with less less than a month to go before the uh, election? At least we know after killing, completely killing stimulus talks and telling his negotiators, no, we're going to focus only on the Supreme Court nominee uh, until the election. Now the president has been dangling other options, saying he could look at one-off deals or even like yesterday he was saying, maybe a comprehensive plan altogether. So uh, you've got airlines wondering if there's money coming quickly so they can rehired those 37,000 people that they just laid off in the past few days. You've got families wondering if they're going to get a $1,200 check and when that can get in their bank accounts. You have jobless workers, you know, 26 million people getting some sort of of, uh, financial aid and and jobless benefits, wondering if there's more money coming down the pike. And of course, states, states that have seen their policing costs go up, have seen their teaching costs go up, uh, who are going to be needing uh, more funds to plug the holes in their budgets because of COVID. A lot of people want to know, when the money is coming. And it's still, I mean, it's still kind of a soup, don't you think, of, um, of conflicting information about whether there will be a stimulus deal soon?
0: Yeah, really thick soup, quite frankly. Um, oh, there's so many angles we could discuss here. Your point about the state and, lo- state and local government spending. I mean, some of the debate behind the scenes seems to be, look, that the Democrats, and we've talked about this yep. before, want to use it for all sorts, that the Republicans want right. it more narrow. But, you know, I saw... One of the write-ups on CNN business this morning, and it struck me that the Democrats five months ago signed a deal in the House to come up with $3 trillion worth of stimulus. I don't care how much they tried to chuck into that. We've had five months to negotiate back from that point. The runway, to
1: be fair to them, was huge. Uh, you know, and it's, it was that was May 15th, $3.5 trillion, the HEROES Act. And obviously that's a negotiating point. That's a starting point for negotiations. For a while there, uh, the Republicans said they wanted to wait and see how stimulus was working. There wasn't an urgency for a fifth round of stimulus. Remember, the president stepped in and did some executive orders that had, you know, fair to say some impact for, for some extra jobless benefits, uh, but not in other areas where he wanted to get money directly uh, to the American people. But there's been plenty of time for politics to figure out how to get to, yes here and what that number should look like i you know most of the wall street analysts and and the economists who i talked to they had been factoring in a a trillion and a half or two trillion at least in their assumptions for growth in the recovery if they don't get that soon you'll see you'll see them starting to pull back their expectations for what the recovery looks like or whether we can sustain this recovery and not have a, a double dip recession early next year
0: yeah, and this is the critical point, isn't it? We're already seeing slowing and the risk is that we start to, at the back end of this year, see some kind of job losses. Mark Zandi, Moody's Analytics, going to be on the show later on. Okay. He's got this rule of thumb, a 10,000 case rise in COVID cases equates to the requirement for a further $100 billion in stimulus spending. He was already saying one and a half billion. So given the rises that we've seen, even just in the last few weeks, we're already looking at what $1.6 billion. We're already at the base case for the Republicans and the cases are going in the wrong direction.
1: And I think it's a really great reminder that you just can't say, just open the economy. We have to live with this virus. No, the virus, if it's not under control, actually costs the economy more. It, it, It holds back your ability to recover. These two things work together. It's not a light switch that's one or the other. And I think that's what's so frustrating uh, sometimes when you when you hear, you know, even from the beginning of the summer or the spring, when the president wanted to have, you know, full churches in April, now he wants to have full rallies again. No, when this virus keeps spreading, it costs money and it costs the economy and economic growth and job creation. And that's, and that's very clear here. And grappling with that and getting some real leadership from, uh, you know, from the executive branch is really, really Necessary, and we just we really haven't had it, and that's I think what's been so frustrating in all of these months.
0: Yeah, it's been necessary and desperate for for eight months, quite frankly. Yeah. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that.
1: Have a nice weekend, Julia.
0: You too. All right, let's move on. Virtual or reality? It's unclear if or how the next U.S. presidential debate will take place as Donald Trump recovers from coronavirus. He says he won't take part in an online event and might even hold a rally though on saturday but most concerning to me actually is the president's health just listen to this short clip from fox news last night i think the first debate they yeah excuse me on the first
2: debate they oscillated
3: the mic well i want him to vote
0: john harwood joins us now john i'll say it straight you and I, neither of us are, are medical experts. Our job is to tell the facts rather than to speculate. But unfortunately, that's part of the problem here. We don't have the facts. I just worry whether part of the reason of postponing this debate or not doing it virtually is because actually the president's not well enough to do it. That was a really worrying interview.
4: The problem, Julia, is that we haven't gotten straight information from the White House about the president's health from the beginning. The president's doctor, Sean Connolly, acknowledged that he misled reporters because he wanted to put a uh, rosier spin on the president's condition a few days ago. Now, uh, the White House still has not said when the president's last negative test was. That would tell us how far he is in the course of illness. The further in he is, the closer he is to being out of the woods, but we don't know. And you hear things like the cough in that uh, telephone interview, and you wonder, does that mean he's sicker than we think? They have not made the doctors available for questioning in the last several days. We've not seen the president live on camera uh, since Monday and and not uh, speaking in quite some time. He's released some tape messages. uh, And he's been on Twitter rants that are pretty odd, uh, claiming his own cabinet is failing him, as well as Democrats and the media lashing out, saying that uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton ought to be Indicted for crimes against him. Uh, We know that uh, uh, he has indicated that he's pretty much done with uh, coronavirus medications except for the powerful steroid that he's been on, and the steroid can affect your mood and behavior. So um, the exact state of the president's health is unclear. He says he wants to have a rally on Saturday. His staff has not indicated whether that's really going to materialize. He's trying to use that as an argument to tell the commission on presidential debates that they should have next week an in-person debate rather than a virtual one, but the commission has acted uh, uh, in ways to, to designed to protect people working on those debates as well as Joe Biden and his staff and the president's staff, uh, and uh, the president clearly doesn't like it.
0: No, and to your point, you, if he is still taking steroids, you you can't take steroids forever, and there's a come-down involved when you um, when you're weaned off them. John, we'll see if he does the rally tomorrow. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us and giving us an update on that. All right, from tensions in D.C. to tourism in China and the Beijing authorities saying that 640 million tourists made trips throughout Golden Week. Selena Wang has all the details.
5: China just went on a massive vacation, swarming tourist sites, crowding airports and train stations, scenes that are impossible in most parts of the world right now. It almost looks like life before COVID-19, with huge crowds like this at the Forbidden City, standing shoulder to shoulder, most with masks on, but some without. It's a similar picture at the Great Wall, crammed along the winding wall, squeezing past each other in narrow quarters. China just celebrated its Golden Week holiday, one of the country's busiest travel periods. Normally, it's when millions of Chinese go abroad, But as the rest of the world battles COVID-19, they're staying closer to home, boarding cruise ships, relaxing on beaches, hiking mountains, and even getting married. During the eight-day holiday, 637 million people took trips within the country, spending more than $68 billion. If we compare the first seven days this year with the shorter holiday last year, that's a more than 20% drop in travel and spending. But it's still a much-needed boost to the economy, which has been gradually bouncing back. Local governments are even competing to attract tourists, issuing travel vouchers and discounted tickets. But in cities like Beijing and Shanghai, schools have asked students not to leave for the holiday, leading to busy parks in Shanghai like this one, with kids and parents mostly without masks. Hundreds of millions of people going on vacation at the same time is a major test for China's COVID-19 strategy. The country hasn't reported any locally transmitted cases since mid-August. Even Wuhan, the original epicenter of the outbreak, has become a traveler hotspot. Online agency SeaTrip listed this Wuhan landmark, the Yellow Crane Tower, as the most sought-after Golden Week attraction, enticing them with this light show. But some travelers, like Chen, a 29-year-old who works in Beijing, are still worried.
3: Even though the epidemic situation has improved, I'm still very worried. Every day is different and the situation may change. So we should still wear masks and take good protective measures when we're on the train.
5: China has had a few flare-ups in recent months, but they were followed by lockdowns and mass testing measures. Now, the rest of the world is watching to see if China can keep up its track record of no infections after the mass travel holiday. And if China will live up to the government's message that the country has defeated
0: the virus. Selena Wang, CNN, Hong Kong. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. And the Nobel Peace Prize Prize. The UN's World Food Programme is being honoured with this year's Peace Prize in Oslo. The Nobel Committee praised the group which works to save lives and end starvation in more than 80 different countries. And they said the programme's mission is even more crucial this year because of the pandemic. In the face of the pandemic, the World Food
6: Programme has demonstrated an impressive ability to intensify its efforts. As the organisation itself has stated, until the day we have a vaccine,
0: food is the best vaccine against chaos. Mm, Wise words there. Phil Black joins us now. Phil, it may have been a surprise, but you cannot deny this is a worthy cause.
3: Yeah, indeed, that's right, Julian. This wasn't a name that was buzzing about ahead of the announcement as a likely winner, but the organisation, its work is undeniably worthy, especially this year. To give it some context, last year they said they helped nearly 100 million hungry and starving people. This year it's around 135 million and the organisation warns that number could increase further and of course this spike in demand for its help is all because or largely because of uh, the pandemic its executive director has warned of a potential wave of famine around uh, the world the organization uh, specializes in fighting hunger of course and the Nobel committee justified in why it deserves a peace prize by talking about what it was saying was an undeniable link between hunger and war they're often locked in a vicious cycle you'll never solve one without the other and the committee said it wants the world to think about the millions of starving people uh, right now so the World Food Programme is being honored for its work but also for its example the committee made it pretty clear its it's sending a message about the importance of countries working together to solve the really big problems in its opening comments making this announcement today uh, it said that the need for uh, international solidarity and multilateral cooperation uh, is as uh, great as it's ever been, Julia.
0: Yeah, work and the message. for Black, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up after this, stories of recovery and transformation, both big and small. IBM's executive chairman, Ginny Rometty, up next, an old company facing new opportunities and challenges in the cloud and a little later, small firms cutting loose from loans. The CEO of online lending marketplace Lendio gives his take. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. IBM splitting itself into two companies. The 109-year-old firm will list its IT services unit as a separate entity to focus in on high-margin cloud computing. IBM expects the cost of the breakup to come to nearly $5 billion. Ginny Rometty, executive chairman of IBM, joining us now to discuss this. Ginny, always fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us investors certainly loved the sound of this yesterday, a significant shift in the business model, but it does to me feel like a natural progression in light of that transformative Red Hat deal. Talk us through the
7: thinking now. Yes, well, you've re- first off, good to see you, and Hi. you've interpreted all right. This is really the next step for us. Um, it's been a multi-year journey, multi-year journey, as you know, and this step could not have happened had we not done all the work ahead of time, which, as you know, we've divested many businesses, then we built a foundation of the cloud, both private and public. And then two years ago, it was really a seminal moment when we acquired Red Hat. And that really positioned us, which we are today, the leading hybrid cloud platform out there. Now over the last two years, Julia, we saw great results and it's accelerated. So we really do have what I believe is now the enduring technology platform that IBM needs for its future. So this is a natural next step. And it's also really now what's happened on how clients are buying. They look at their managed infrastructure services, one set of decision makers do that, and then the digital transformation is really driven by another. So the company is really along those two lines.
0: Yeah, and we've seen nothing but digital transformation. The shift to that, particularly in the last seven months So the timing, I think, here as well is, um, is pretty critical. Um, you would always emphasize to us in terms of the infrastructure business that it was a critical part of the relationships and the services that you provided to clients. So I understand the split, but how do you make that separation as, as painless as possible in terms of those relationships?
7: Yes, well, and I've also had the chance obviously now a day later to talk to many clients. Given that they're both market leading and the clients depend so much on IBM for the hybrid cloud and digital transformation and the new company, which will be for their modernization of their infrastructure, they want them both to be best in class. Now the new company is, at 19 billion, it is best in class by a factor of two and that is a scale game. And then IBM is an innovation side now with the hybrid cloud. And clients understand those are two different capital allocation models, and they're very comfortable because they see the same people that will be in the new company. They know that it will have its investment priorities. It'll be number one for its own investment priorities, which are different than the investment priorities for the hybrid cloud. And they know there's a strong partnership between the two. And so those elements of the same people, the right capital allocation strategy and a strong partnership is going to allow this to work. And so every client I've talked to sees strong logic and is actually looking forward to even acceleration from both companies.
0: Yeah, a honing of focus here on the on the two separate things. Ginny, well-known short seller Jim Chanos uh, weighed in yesterday, and he accused the company of financial engineering. I'm just pulling out some of the things from his blog. He said, "The upcoming 2.3 billion dollar charge for quote structural action is." and that being invested is, and I'm quoting again, financial gibberish, he said, the earnings per share for the company this year is more like $6 rather than $11, and expectations need to be reset. Ginny, you've led this company and led this company for a long time. What's your response to those accusations?
7: Yes, look, I am very proud. We have led this company at 109 years to both reinvent, rediscover itself, and every move was made in that spirit, and in fact right now if you just think back to what the logic is in the marketplace you use the word focus which is what this is about v- maniacal focus on hybrid cloud maniacal focus on managed services and then what we did was line up every action behind it to make both of them successful so let's talk a minute about what on one part is a restructuring charge but that is around things like stranded costs and what you have to do to create these two different things and when you think about that it also says by the way as we make ourselves more streamlined as we will we're gonna take that money and reinvest it. People don't do those things if they were doing something else. This is about being able to take IBM, the hybrid cloud company, and invest more, and in fact, the company committed to, as you saw, mid-single-digit growth in the medium term. And so this is all about lining up every vector you line up so that you can have a growth company with IBM, and then with the new company, scale, delivery excellence, I should say, by the way, it's going to be given a very healthy balance sheet, Again, something that would dispel any of that kind of discussion. A healthy balance sheet, good cash, investment grade. And so you've got clients with two market leading companies with the fuel that they each need to succeed.
0: You're saying financial engineering will prove you wrong.
7: That seems to be the message. Sorry, Julia?
0: I was just saying, you're saying financial engineering will prove you wrong.
7: Oh, this is absolutely a strategic move and it is the next move and what you know has been a journey that we couldn't have taken this move today until we did all the work to prepare and have a strong foundation, a technology foundation that IBM will now grow on. And again, I have to say market leading and it's a success from Red Hat. In the last two years, we have gone from 800 customers, 2,400. The number of large strategic engagements up 200%. So this gave us a lot of conviction that now is the moment to do this. And then with the acceleration of digital transformation that you guys talk about every single day on the show, <laughs> that actually is created that difference in how clients buy.
0: Good to know. Ginny, I want to move on and get your uh, sense of what we're seeing in terms of economic recovery and, and what more support is required. I know you're part of the Business Roundtable, the biggest executives and leaders in the country in the business sector that, that talk about policy and strategy. What do they think is required at this moment and how worried are they?
7: Yeah, well, look, I think you know one of the elements that I've been very involved with in the Business Roundtable, as you know, Julia, has been what I think is now going to be a, a crisis around jobs and skills. This was brewing before with the digital transformation era, where everyone's job was going to be changing in some kind of way. And now with the confluence of both an economic situation, COVID, as well as the racial injustices around the world, all of those coming together, it really crescendos. And I do think it's a jobs crisis, but it's driven by skills. And so one of our biggest efforts is all of us together, and you know, we've worked on this for really my entire tenure about how to bring so many underserved populations into the technology world. And they don't necessarily have to have a four year degree. I think we've started a movement around skills first, meaning hire someone if they can get the skill no matter how they get it versus just because of their degree. And and so many of us are working together on what I consider things that only private and public sector could do together. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think you'll see, like you have seen with the approach to COVID, some of the largest mobilizations of corporate the corporate world to make some of the largest contributions now.
0: Yeah, and that relaxing of, of college degree requirements is so critical. and. You and I have discussed in the past and we'd love to do it again. Ginny, come back anytime, please, and talk to us about this purely because we're both very passionate about the subject. Ginny Rometty, executive chairman of IBM. Great to chat to you. you, Ginny, as always. Thank you. All right. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening bell for the final time this week stocks opening higher this morning following gains yesterday just to give you a sense of where we are so far in october we're up around two percent for the majors after a week where hopes for more financial aid for the u.s economy have been revived dashed and revived once more I'm probably not getting enough of the twitches and turns in there but we'll go with that type talks have also sent stocks in california-based chipmaker xilinx surging the rival advanced micro devices or amd is reportedly in discussions to buy it in a deal worth over 30 billion dollars that could come as early as next week so watch this space on that all right now to an update on global covid cases countries around the world are seeing new spikes in coronavirus infections this chart shows the trend lines for new cases per day europe is yellow and showing a sharp rise in recent weeks, as we mentioned earlier on the show. Asia, meanwhile, in blue, is beginning to see a slight drop there and others are relatively flat. The United States has seen a jump in more than 56,000 new cases, the highest daily total in nearly eight weeks, in fact. And the chief economist of Moody's Analytics says that could have a staggering economic impact. Mark Zandi says for every 10,000 new infections, around $100 billion of additional federal government support is potentially required. And Mark Zandi joins us now. Mark, great to have you with us. And I love your rule of thumb because it gives us a sense of where we should be headed in these negotiations. You've long said $1.5 trillion stimulus is what you think is required. Are you more or less optimistic pre-election that we get something in light of the uh, Chaos—can we call it that—of the negotiations over the last week or so.
2: Well, I, Julia, I'm, I'm perplexed by what's going on. <laughs> it's just whiplash, you know. It depends on the, you know, the minute, the hour, the day. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it makes economic sense to come forward with a, with a sizable uh, fiscal rescue package—one point five trillion, I think, would be uh, appropriate at this point—and it makes political sense. I mean, I, I just don't get it. So. I, I'm still holding out hope. Uh, you know, I, I think this is going to get done, but, you know, right at the very last minute. So uh, ho- hopefully these guys can get it together because that, that's what the economy needs for sure.
0: I mean, you were saying one and a half trillion dollars when the cases were around 40, 45. If we're already talking about yeah. 56,000 cases a day, just using your rule of thumb, we're already talking sort of $1.6, $1.7 trillion, when I look at the gap between the two sides here, and I know it's more complicated than that, but $2.2 trillion for the Democrats, $1.6 trillion for the Republicans, we're sort of getting to the meat in the middle point.
2: Yeah, you, you would think. I, I agree with you. I mean, $1.5 trillion, I, I I thought that that's a doable amount, so that's what I've been assuming. But you know, you you would figure that if the if the Trump administration is at one point six and the House Democrats are at two point two, you know logic would dictate you'd, you know, you could get, get to the middle one point eight five trillion. And you're right. I mean, the the price tag is rising because the infections, uh, as you point out, are are rising as well. The other thing i I'd, I'd say is it's better to err on the side of too big than too small for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, it's a long time between now and the other side of the election and the inauguration and getting legislation through it, particularly in a time of a pandemic. And the other thing I'd point out is the the uncertainty here. There's so many things we don't really know uh, how they're going to play out, the pandemic, the election, and lots of other things. And in a a period of high uncertainty, you know, policymaking 101 says, you know, go big uh, because uh, you want to make sure that you don't fall short, uh, particularly in a in a crisis like the one we're in. So, you know, everything argues for a big package here. The final thing I'll say, though, Julia, is if we don't get a package now, I'm I'm very confident uh, when the next president is uh, soon after the next president's inaugurated, we're going to get a big a, a package and it's going to the, the, uh, the, the more the economy struggles, the bigger that package will be.
0: Yeah, but I think your, your point here in the short term, at least, and it's not even the short term, it's more medium term now because it's been a few months since the bump up in unemployment benefits ended. So we're already well into this stage. The, the risks are asymmetric. The downside risks here are far greater than providing too much money and it being too much. Um, you've also been looking at, and this plays to the point you just made, about the economic impact of a ongoing Trump presidency, a split Congress, House Is run by the democrats senate is maintained by the republicans uh, but also a clean sweep for the democrats just give us a sense of what the economic outcomes based on at times meager policy announcements for both sides is is giving you
2: yeah sure so we did run different scenarios uh, on the election outcome and uh, uh, determined what the policies would be under those scenarios and what that meant for the macro economy for the economy's performance going forward and uh, uh, my sense is that under a democratic sweep, we'd end up with a stronger economy, m- more jobs, lower unemployment, more GDP by the end of the president's term than if we ended up with a, a split government or with a with a Republican sweep. And it boils down to three things. First is uh, around fiscal policy. A Biden sweep would result in a big fiscal rescue package: infrastructure, healthcare, education housing. And that's exactly what the economy needs right now since unemployment is so high, inflation is so low, and interest rates are pegged to zero. And the Federal Reserve is saying, you know, we're going to keep interest rates at zero. Second is trade. Uh, I think uh, Biden would continue to be uh, aggressive in, in trying to get China to play by the rules, but they wouldn't use a tariff war to do it. And the tariff war that the Trump administration has been pursuing has been very counterproductive. It's like a tax increase on American business and consumers. And finally, immigration policy. These guys are night and day on immigration. President Trump would double down on his restrictive immigration policy, which is not good for the economy, particularly longer run. And Biden would normalize policy, bring it back to where it was pre-Trump, and that would be positive for the job market and productivity growth in the future. So I can go on, but those are the key uh, things that would result in these, these different outcomes. And, and, you know, if, if you're interested, uh, just Google Zandi, macroeconomic consequences of, of Trump v. Biden, and you can see all the gory details it's laid out for, for everyone to see.
0: Nice pitch there. And I'll tweet it out as well, just to, uh, to help along here. Just to be clear, you say 7 million more jobs created um, under a Biden presidency compared to a scenario where Trump is reelected and the Republicans hold the Senate. The counter to this, and admittedly, I studied economics a while ago, isn't extra spending a drag on growth, Mark? And the suggestion is taxes would rise under a, a Democratic uh, leadership here that also the risk of greater regulation coming back and some of that good perhaps if we're talking about the environment but not all of it and it could be a case of being seeing businesses mummified quite frankly in red tape would also be a drag on growth what's the counter to that
2: yeah it, in, in my view regulatory policy is you know really much really on the margin for the broader economy you know it matters for industries you know it's going to matter for the fossil fuel industry if biden wins he's going to take a different very different approach on regulation of of fossil fuels in the Trump administration. It matters perhaps for the financial system and banking industry, but and, and perhaps for some companies, but from a broad macroeconomic sense, it's very difficult, I, and I haven't seen anyone do it, and I've tried to connect the dots between regulatory policy and uh, economic growth. It's just very, very difficult to do. It's, it's really on the margin. Uh, And you're right. uh, Biden is uh, going going to raise taxes on uh, corporations and on high income, uh, wealthier households, reverse much of what President Trump did uh, in his first term. Take that money and then also borrow some additional money to fund his uh, infrastructure plan and all the other spending and investments that he's. He's going to do the net of all that is uh, a big boost to uh, economic growth. And and, and Julia, in, in many t- in periods, I, I probably wouldn't feel as upbeat about this kind of a policy, except in this period, because we have a 7.9 percent unemployment rate. Uh, we have a lot of people who are underemployed. People have had pay uh, cuts. Inflation is very low. And in interest rates are at zero. And, and the Federal Reserve is saying to, to policymakers, lawmakers, you know, step on the accelerator here. And that's exactly what the Biden plan is doing. So uh, in, in, in other times, I'm, I, I wouldn't be as enthusiastic. But in this time, I think it's the exact right policy to pursue.
0: Yes. Cost of borrowing minimal, if not negative, And a uh, promise to keep those interest rates down as well. Now's the time. Mark Zandi, thank you so much for that. All right, coming up for after the break, more help for those who've borrowed money for small business loans in the United States, too. The CEO of lending platform Lendio says more must be done, and he's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Small businesses that borrowed money under the U.S. government's Payment Protection or Paycheck Protection Scheme, the PPP, will find it easier to have those loans forgiven. The Treasury and the Small Business Administration are simplifying the process for loans of less than $50,000. Lendio, meanwhile, is a marketplace for small business lending. During the pandemic, it says around 100,000 borrowers used its platform for the PPP loans from its partners. It estimates over 1 million jobs have been preserved through the $8 billion worth of loans that were transacted during a two-month period. Brock Blake is CEO and founder of Lendio, and he wants the PPP scheme to be extended. Brock, fantastic to have you on the show as always. So let's talk about trying to make getting forgiveness for these loans easier. You know, I've had a look at the details on this. You still have to provide payroll forms, benefit forms, tax documentation. I'm not sure it's that much easier. What are your thoughts?
6: Well, uh, I'm I'm happy that SBA and Treasury have taken a step forward to try and simplify it as much as possible. But as you said, there's still quite a bit of work to do. Um, And it's probably as much as the SBA and Treasury can do on their own and the power they have. I think they need to wait till Congress passes a, an additional bill that truly simplifies that for those smallest of small businesses. But as you said, it's a step in the right direction, but there's still plenty of work to do for those uh, smaller businesses.
0: Are you in agreement that we should see some forgiveness? Just sign a document to say, look, I took this money in good faith. There are those that are pushing for a loans below $150,000 to simply be forgiven like that. Are you in favor of that, or perhaps a smaller amount?
6: Yeah, I, I believe there's a balance between accountability to, for those business owners to uh, produce. You know, they, they stated they would take the loan for certain expenses, including payroll and uh, utilities and rent. And I think there's a certain amount of accountability that they need to be able to show. But that being said, for the smallest of small businesses, um, probably less than fifty thousand, maybe less than twenty-five thousand, and definitely the sole proprietors, self-employed, those should automatically be forgiven. Uh, We need to make it easier for them to be able to get that loan off their books and and help them through this difficult time. So I think 150,000 is too large, um, but for the smallest businesses, definitely auto-approved the forgiveness
0: you said accountability and I do think this is important because there will be people going hang on a second there was a lot of fraud you transacted four times the amount of loans as in matching in that period that two month period as you've done in what the eight or nine years since you founded the company two billion dollars and then eight billion dollars these are astonishing sums of money and trying to get money to desperate people quite frankly to keep their businesses alive Are you worried about fraud? And are you worried about fraud at banks versus fraud from online lenders? Because there are people asking questions about the comparison between those two things.
6: There's no question that uh, fraud is a concern for the entire industry, from the SBA, from the fintech lenders to the bank. And I don't think it leaves anyone out. I think uh, across the board there are concerns. Um, And I also think that that was... uh, um, you know, when you, when you roll out a program of that magnitude in such a short amount of time, there will likely be some fraud. The, the, the concern is, what is the level? And I don't think we have true visibility into how much fraud actually existed, where, and we're still trying to gather numbers around that. But it is definitely a concern, which is part of the reason what, for my stance on forgiveness. I think forgiveness um, allows the lending institutions and the SBA to have a second look at how that business owner used that those that money. This is These are taxpayer dollars. Did they go out and spend the money on a Lamborghini? Uh, then that should not be automatically be forgiven. They should document that they used it for those items, um, payroll and and uh, utility uh, and other uh, rent expenses. Otherwise, I think they have a responsibility to pay that money back.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I think on that, Brock, uh, despite the of logistical challenges of trying to pull all this information together and keeping your business going that's my next question brock what are you hearing from small businesses because the pandemic isn't over the challenge exists and for many of them the money's run out
6: very very frustrating right now that we're watching what's happening in Wash in washington with politics Um, it appears that on every side of the aisle everyone wants to help small business owners with a second round of ppp And small business owners desperately need it. I've seen stats where over 200,000 businesses are are closed. 60% of them are closed permanently. Um, About 70% of businesses have had a decrease of 25% um, in their revenues this year compared to last year. And and the last round of PPP happened in April. Uh, They provided two and a half months of capital to help these business owners get through. But the pandemic is not over. Uh, businesses are still shut down. Restaurants are still impacted with the number of customers they can have. Retail shops have been decimated. And meanwhile, in Washington, they're playing politics. And uh, we cannot continue to go day after day after day waiting for uh, these negotiations to happen on this stimulus bill. So we we are urging Congress and, and uh, uh uh, Secretary Mnuchin and 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 uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi, to figure out a way to be able to get a deal done, come to a compromise, and help America's Main Street small businesses.
0: Yeah, and the heartbreaking thing is, and you've pointed to it, there does seem to be agreement on both sides. It's just politics right. getting in the, in the way of just releasing that money. Brock, I do want to ask about more structural changes. In the industry as well, we saw a big deal between Amex and Cabbage, a lender that's been on this show, for example. We've seen other deals that look a little bit more distressed. What does the future look like for some of these fintech players? Do we see more consolidation in the sector?
6: I believe that there will be more consolidation. I um, when you look at the scenarios that are out there, Amex and Cabbage, that's a, a great win for both sides. And even the other scenario where you have Enova acquiring On deck Capital in, in 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 what has been called the distressed deal, I actually am very excited to see what happens with that. Enova's prowess of of execution with OnDeck's brand and the way they've helped small business owners, I actually have higher hopes for that uh, transaction than than maybe most in the industry, and look forward to seeing what happens over the next couple of years. But certainly a lot of players have been negatively affected by the pandemic lenders, um, and they're not gonna make it through. And that will either result in them closing their doors or uh, more consolidation. And really the the challenge with that is I think the the small business owner is the one that gets affected. Um, The more lenders there are, the more competitive it is, and the better rates, uh, the better options that a small business owner has. Um, So it's, it's gonna be interesting to watch. Uh, But I do uh, expect uh, additional consolidation in the lending industry.
0: Yeah, but you raise a great point. The less competition, the higher rates go and the higher the lending rates. And it's a tough time to make money. Brock, great to have you with us. Brock Blake there, the CEO and founder of Lendio. And great job during those two months, by the way. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up. After the break, severe weather warnings are in effect for Texas and Louisiana as Hurricane Delta churns in the Gulf of Mexico. It could be the second such storm to hit the Lake Charles, Louisiana area. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Hurricane Delta has regained strength, making it once again a Category 3 storm. As it moves north across the Gulf of Mexico, preparations in Louisiana are underway. Delta is expected to hit later Friday near the same spot Hurricane Laura devastated just six weeks ago. Laura causing extensive damage to homes and businesses. Meteorologist Derek Van Damme joins us now from the Louisiana coast, where more than three metres of storm surge is predicted. Derek, talk us through it. That sounds pretty devastating.
8: Yeah, not great for an area that's already been ravaged by so many storms. In fact, we've had four named tropical cyclones uh, strike the Louisiana coast this year. This is going to be the 10th named tropical cyclone to make landfall in the U.S., setting a new record. I mean, an unprecedented season that we are currently underway. We're using the Greek alphabet, for goodness sake. This has the potential, Julia, uh, to uh, add another billion-dollar disaster to the United States' list of billion-dollar disasters that have occurred already this year. There's more than 10 that have already happened. Now, uh, you can think about the multitude of storms that continue to batter the coastline of Louisiana and what this is doing to the industries here. Let's talk about that, because I'm in Delcambre, uh, Louisiana. This is in the Vermilion Parish, and what you're looking at is very representative of this particular area. Lots of fishing. This is a huge industry. Shrimp, crab, those types of things. And uh, with Hurricane Laura, as you mentioned in your tease to me just a moment ago, uh, so fresh on people's mind, just six weeks ago, we had over 30,000 homes that were destroyed, 35,000 homes that were damaged. They still have blue tarps on top of them. Uh, There's still lots of debris that's still on the roadways uh, that could be potentially be uh, projectiles as the winds pick up this afternoon and evening. Uh, but the flooding from storm surge, Julia, here it is, Hurricane Laura. This is the high water mark that occurred with Hurricane Delta, the potential to repeat this once again. That will be devastating for the local businesses and not to mention the residents here in Delcombe, Louisiana. Julia.
0: Wow, that water line, Derek. Thank you so much for bringing us that update to Derek Van Dam there. Derek, stay safe and our hearts with everybody there. Thank you for that all right that's it for the show you've been watching first move i'm julia chasley stay safe this weekend and we'll see you same time same place on monday